0: Hi, this is Reverend Tommy, and I'd like to welcome you back to the garden where we explore the big questions about life. I invite you to open your minds and be receptive to seeing things differently. So let's get metaphysical. Well, good morning once again. Last time I spoke, I did a lesson titled Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. It is the title of a book written by biblical scholar Reverend Marcus Borg. To review the book real quickly, the book represents a different way of looking at the figure of Jesus. Reverend Borg tells us that there are two Jesuses in the Bible. I mentioned that last time. One is the historical Jesus, and the other one is referred to as the Christ of faith. He refers to these two Jesuses as the pre-Easter Jesus and the post-Easter Jesus. The Christ of faith, the post-Easter Jesus, is the figure most are familiar with. The Christ of faith is the idea of Jesus as the only Son of God who died for the sins of the world, the Savior. All 400-plus Christian denominations believe and teach this, yet, fascinatingly enough, Reverend Borg tells us, that Jesus himself Jesus himself, would have not been familiar with this figure. And I said that last time. It would be like an evangelical telling Jesus that Jesus must believe in Jesus. And he would say, like, where did you get that idea? It's kind of a strange thing, but this is the way it is. Now, I've told you very many times that I'm fascinated by early the Christian movement. And so I've not only read Reverend Borg's books, I've read other books about the time period and I've read or heard quite a few of the great courses about the time. And it comes down to this, that the consensus amongst uh, biblical scholars is that during his lifetime, neither Jesus nor his disciples saw him as the Son of God. There was no talk about uh, he being the savior by either he or the disciples. That view was developed later, 20 plus years or so, and the greatest proponent was Paul. Now, it is important to note that this take on Jesus as the Savior was not the only one that there was. There were many, many, many different points of view. This simply was the one, the interpretation, that had the most impetus and managed to make it through at the end. It won out, in other words. Remember, early Christianity was a developing oral tradition and it continued to change over time. Evangelicals would argue that yes, Jesus did see himself as God, and they would use the Gospel of John to as evidence. You know, when he says, I am the word, I am the way, the truth, the light, nobody comes to the Father, I'm the true, I'm the resurrection, and all these things. But scholars do not agree with this point. They say that by the time we get to the Gospel of John, which was the last one to be written some 30 years after the first one and 60 plus years after the life of Jesus, the person of Jesus has changed completely by that point. In fact, the John Jesus is so different and irreconcilable to the synoptic gospels that according to scholars, in in most likelihood, the gospel of John were not even the words of Jesus anymore. That's how much it was changing. Now part of the reasoning for them believing this also is that, you think about this, if that was the central message of Jesus, and it's a big one, I mean really big, if that was it, then why was there no mention of it by the earlier writers? Did you just simply forget? It's no big deal. What it means it's no big deal? This is the main thing. Yet there's no mention of it. And the reason why is because they didn't have that view yet. It hadn't gotten that far yet. I know it's strange, but it is what it is. Now, when you study the time period, it comes pretty easy to see how all these things, all these beliefs came to be. First, no one believed that we were connected to God in any way, shape, or form. Of course not. I mean, look around, we're a mess. How could we be possibly connected to God? In spite of what Genesis says, that we are created in image of God, a likeness of God, like Michael said, why do we take that literally? I don't know, we just don't. But we should, well we do. <laughs> now being disconnected from God, of course, is a separation of, a paradigm of separation. And as such, obviously, a savior has to come from the outside in some form or another. On top of that, the reasoning was that, well, God had promised the Hebrew people a savior, a king back in the Old Testament. And another thing is that sacrifices were very, very common. It was part of the religious service. Third, most all of them believed in an end time, the apocalyptic view of things that I've talked about. But the clincher, the, the part that really kind of threw them for a loop is that the king was not supposed to die. The king was not supposed to suffer. And in fact, this is part of the reasoning why The Jews still do not believe that Jesus is a Savior, because the, the, the Savior is supposed to set up the kingdom of God here on earth. He wasn't supposed to die, but he did die, and he did suffer. So why? What happened? The reasoning started that, well, he must have surely died for something. If he died, he was resurrected, obviously chosen by God. So why did he die? Well. Through deductive reasoning, they came up with the conclusion that it was for the sins of the world that Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. This fit right into the formula, the way everybody saw things back then. There was a need to offer God sacrifices, and Jesus's crucifixion became the ultimate sacrifice. It made perfect sense to Paul, and that is what he taught. But the question for us is, Does it make perfect sense to us? Does it make perfect sense that God Almighty had a plan to incarnate and go through a brutal and barbaric sacrifice to make amends with man? I understand, as I said, why they would think these things, but I don't understand why we would in the 21st century anymore. Let me repeat something. Every time I talk about things like this, I, I just have a feeling a need to say, I'm not, being, I'm not trying to be controversial by bringing up these subjects. But if that is the truth, then that is the truth. And we must learn to deal with it and, and see what we're gonna do with it. And metaphor, metaphor is part of what helps make sense of this. And Reverend Borg talks about metaphor in the book, reading Jesus again for the first time. In any case, they are both fascinating books And if you're interested in the early Christian movement from the scholastic point point of view, then you probably need to read these books. I think you really like them. And you decide for yourself. See, I'm not here to tell you what to think. As I say, I'm a teacher, I'm not a preacher. And uh, in Unity, we are uh, free thinkers. And that's one of the things that, that I like about Unity, that we're here to educate. And when I was at Unity Village last, they brought it to our attention again that the root word from educate comes from the Latin, which means to, to bring out, to bring out in you, in you that which, your potential, what you already know, if you will, if you were a, a platonic type of a guy, you know, so. As I like to say, if we're going to insist on being a Christian base, then I think we need to know what the real base is. And I've been wanting to ask this for a, for a, for a while, so I'm gonna ask you real quick, like real quick poll. Now, I, just out of curiosity, because as they say, unity, the good thing is it's wide open. The bad thing is that it's wide open, <laughs> you know, and so I, I'm just curious: how many people like the idea of being associated as, as a as a Christian movement? Would you say yeah? yeah. Okay, yeah. How, how many would say in the middle, like well, so so, and and how many would say, well, it doesn't really matter. That's you know, it's just one point of view or something. Because see, the way I I, uh, I see things is that I, I think. If I'm going to put my theological marbles in this basket that uh, we call Christianity, then I want to know who made the basket. And not only do I want to know who made the basket, I want to know if the basket can withstand the weight of my theological marbles. So see, I have to figure this out. So moving on, from seeing Jesus differently, Reverend Borg goes into seeing the Bible differently. He separates it into three sections. Part one is called Foundations. Part two is the Hebrew Bible. And part three is the New Testament. Foundations consists of three chapters. It says, reading lenses, seeing the Bible again. Reading lenses, the Bible and God. Reading lenses, history and metaphor. A lot of material in this book. And I'd like to discuss it all in detail sometime. Maybe once I get through my practicum work, we can set up a little book club afterwards because it really would be good to kind of go with a fine-tooth comb all over all of this. And once I finish that, maybe we can, and instead of just chatting at coffee, we can actually, you know, read for a little while or something. And, and we'll talk about that. Soon. So let's talk about this lenses stuff that he brings up. He says, we all have reading lenses. And of course, he's not talking about glasses or actual lenses. What he is talking about is our consciousness. He doesn't say that word, but that is what he's referring to. You know, there's a saying It says, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And that's very interesting. And Last week, during our, our study class, I brought up this strange idea that had brought, been brought up in the Let's Get Metaph- Metaphysical class, and I saw it here again, and I couldn't find it because I was looking in the wrong books, Mary Lee. <laughs> but it's in this book, You Are the Universe, by Deepak and some physicist guy. Talk about lenses and, and consciousness. It says this, Sir John Eccles, A neurologist and Nobel laureate declared, I want you to realize that there exists no color in the natural world and no sound. Nothing of this kind. No textures, no patterns, no beauty, no scent. What Eccles means is that all the qualities of nature, from the luxurious scent of a a rose to the sting of the wasp and the taste of honey is produced by human beings. It's a remarkable statement, and nothing can be left out. He goes on to say, not even the galaxies. It's very, very strange. So this is what the Reverend Borg says about the lenses. He says, this is how he puts it. As we enter into the 21st century, we need a new set of lenses through which to read the Bible. The older set, ground and polished in modernity, and modernity is a word from the word modern, and it's a time period. Right now, we would be, I believe, in post modernity or whatever, no longer works for millions of people. These lenses need to be replaced. The older way of seeing and reading the Bible, which I will soon describe, has made the Bible incredible and irrelevant for a vast number of people. One of my central purposes in this book is to provide Christians with a pervasive, persuasive way of seeing and reading their sacred scripture, a way that takes the Bible seriously, but not literally. This is what I keep saying over and over. The way most Christians see Christianity is through the lenses of first century man. That makes no sense to us anymore, and so we get so many people that are leaving and don't understand anymore. I mean, just think of our eyeglasses. How many times have you changed your eyeglasses during the course of your life? Because your, your vision is changing. Well, it's the same thing with consciousness. Your consciousness is changing, and you have to see this differently now. Now, scientifically, We're beginning to move past this old closed system universe that we used to believe in. But mentally, it's still got a real, real big grip on us. And we tend to regress and go back to that old way of thinking. That's why I'm always talking about changing the way we do things. And there's only one way to do this, and that is to change your lenses, metaphorically speaking, of course. In chapter 2, he talks about the Bible and God. And he says that seeing the Bible as a human product does not in any way deny the reality of God. But he does add, the lens I am advocating does not see the Bible as a divine product in origin, or some parts as origin and some parts as human. It is all a human product. This is what he says. He refers to the Buddhist metaphor of the finger pointing to the moon. And he says, the Bible is like a finger pointing to the moon. Christians sometimes make the the mistake of thinking that being Christian is about believing in the finger rather than seeing the Christian life as a relationship to that to which the finger is pointing. And I underline relationship because he talks about that in the first book that Jesus was advocating a relational type of a interchange between you and God. And I talk about that all the time, that it has to be a one-on-one relationship between you and God. It cannot be any other way. It is the only way. And so that word relationship takes on a really interesting meaning. In the third chapter, History and Metaphor, he talks about the distinction between the two, and you know what they are. One is about Seeing things, whether they really literally happened historically, and one is about what the message or the story is trying to tell us, the metaphor behind it. He points out that metaphors can be profoundly true, even though they are not literally true. Something does not have to be literally true. And that's why when we talk about the Bible, whether an event happened or didn't happen, our take is like, when it happened, that's fine. If it didn't happen, that's fine too. Because the metaphor, the story behind it, is much more significant than whether the event took place or not. That's the point of that. He summarizes the two, history and metaphor, that is, as, as this. In short, the historical and metaphorical approaches to reading the Bible need each other. Because we actually say that. Yes, there, there is some history. But, and yes, there is some metaphor, there's both. He says, the historical needs the metaphorical so that the text is not imprisoned in the past. The metaphorical needs the historical so that it does not become subjective fantasy. Now, I'm purposely making this, short, this lesson a little short today because it's just way too much material. And in fact, I even hesitated, I talked to Myrna about it, kind of hesitated about even bringing up the, the topic of the book, because it's so much and it's, it's something you really, and she just went through it with another class and she said, that's a lot of stuff. I said, yeah, I know it is. But, but I wanted to, to introduce you to the book and let you know that it is available at our bookstore and, and you'd like to read it, I, I think it's really important because it's all part of the changing process. And I keep saying, that's my mantra, we've got to change the way we see things. And these types of books help us because they, see, they show us that there is other ways of seeing things. Even our sacred Bible, that there is another way of seeing this. Part of, learning, part of learning is unlearning. And that is what denials and affirmations are all about. It's cleaning out the closets you can make room for new ideas. So when we read these kind of books, it's a process of unlearning. It's almost a denial type process that we talk about here in Unity all the time. Because the old way of seeing things was riddled with fear and guilt. And that is just not conducive to a productive life at all. And I think we all know that. I mean, just imagine being in a household where it's full of fear and guilt. Now, how pleasant and enjoyable do you think that experience would be? And I know some people here in this, uh, in this place are familiar with these concepts, very much so. Well, you know, this is God's house. The universe is God's house. And from where do we possibly get the idea that God's house is filled with guilt and fear? Where do we get this idea from that we've bought into the vast majority? I'll tell you what. Where? We get it by looking through the lenses of the old way of seeing things. That's where we get it from. I'm going to close out the lesson with this idea. See, Biff always sends me these quotes of the day. And he sent me one last week. And and it was while I was looking at this material and preparing for this lesson. And this is what it said. And I said, oh, this ties into what we're talking about here. It says, your time is limited. So don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the result of other people's thinking, looking through the old lens. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most importantly, have the courage to follow your heart and your intuition, because you have an inner voice inside, and it is talking to you. Listen. Have a good Sunday.